are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to The Addiction Files. We have a very important episode tonight. And joining us is Dr. Kathy Supiano, and this is an episode on the grief of overdose deaths. And I think this is an episode that every physician and family member and friend needs to hear. I I can't, I don't know anyone who hasn't been touched by the loss of someone to overdose death. So I'm going to turn it over to Paula to introduce Dr. Supiano to us, and then we are going to talk about this topic. Okay, so uh, Kathy Supiano is a PhD and LCSW. She has lots of other letters after her name. Uh, She's an associate professor in the College of Nursing at the University of Utah and the director of Caring Connections, a hope and comfort in grief program at the University of Utah College of nursing. Dr. Supiano's research is in clinical interventions in complicated grief, prevention of adverse grief outcomes, suicide survivorship, overdose grief, and prison hospice. She has been a practicing clinical social worker and psychotherapist for over 40 years, and her clinical practice has included care of older adults with depression and multiple chronic health concerns, end-of-life care and bereavement care, Dr. Supiano is a fellow in the Gerontological Society of America and a fellow of Thanatology. So, Dr. Supiano, uh, we'll refer to you as Kathy. You asked us to call Mm -hmm. you Kathy. Uh, We're so lucky to have you tonight. We're very excited and humbled to have you come to talk to us. You're very qualified to talk to us about this topic. And I'm actually kind of embarrassed that we're in our fourth year podcast episodes and we haven't really talked about which is actually maybe this is speaking to the whole topic in and of itself that we haven't talked about grief in overdose death and this whole topic. So we're really excited to hear uh, what you have to say and we'll have questions and I think our listeners are going to really appreciate it. So yeah, please let us know how you ended up doing this work and why it's Mm. important to you and and what is it about this that deserves its own specialty? Why is it not just grief? Why are you not just a grief specialist? And Well, thank you, um, both of you, for inviting me to be here. I think if it's all right before I start, I just want to recognize in our audience tonight, we have clinicians and providers, we have family members and friends who have been directly touched by the death of someone, either a family member or friend or a client or patient that they cared about that, that died by overdose death. And so I just want to respectfully acknowledge that this dialogue, I hope, is edifying for you, but it could also be activating and bring you back to a place of pain. I want to acknowledge that. And that's something that when we conclude tonight, I'll share contact information. And we don't want to just leave you kind of hanging with difficult feelings. And so I just want to start by expressing that and, and conveying availability uh, to provide you know a more personal support. But I think it probably in earlier sessions we've talked about in earlier podcasts, you've discussed um, the increase in um, overdose overdoses, both lethal and non-lethal overdoses, as well as the increase in addiction patterns, you know, and, and so I won't go into all of that in this podcast. 
we saw a huge uptick in the pandemic nationwide. And and good news in Utah, some of those numbers are coming down, um, not as much as we would like. But in the meantime, we have a lot of people who um, are dying from from use of use of illicit drugs. And much of this death is coming from drugs that are laced with fentanyl. And so we're seeing this horrible storm of the loneliness and the isolation that came from the pandemic, coupled with under-resourcing care and support for people who are facing issues of substance use, and then um, you know the, the, the drugs that are out there. So it's a really dangerous combination. So we came to this, my, my program, Caring Connections, has provided grief support groups, evidence-based grief support groups that are facilitated by clinicians since 1997. And I've been the director since 2007. And one of our flagship programs has always been suicide grief. So we've always had multiple suicide grief groups going. We run grief support groups four times a year. They're eight weeks long. And then as this problem was emerging and we were seeing more and more of these overdose deaths, you know, we were at a place of saying, well, gee, do we really put people who've had this kind of loss with our suicide group, which talks a lot about sudden and unpredictable death, or do we put them in a spouse loss group or a family or member group? And we just talked with people who had had these losses and they said, you know, we really need our own program and it's different. Our loss is different. So we talked about this dialogue. And in the same way, we recognize that people who are, have lost someone to suicide have a real different grief experience than people who lost someone to cancer. And it's that's irrespective of the person who died. So this isn't a comment on the person who died. It's a comment on the circumstances and then also the social milieu of that death. So if you think about how our our state is and our neighborhoods and things like that. If if you knew a neighbor who lost a family member to cancer, we know how Utahns rally, right? They're casseroles, people care, people offer to mow the lawn and watch the kids and people spring into action. But just like we had seen in the past with suicide grief, and this is changing, thankfully, we also saw an overdose grief that the very people who would have been supportive, the family, the neighbors, the church, the the community, the work, the co-workers sort of recoil from these situations because, and it's not that they're cruel, but they don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. They don't react. And then there is this layer of cruelty, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But for now, we want to recognize that that grief is different. But before we talk about how it's different, I want to talk about just grief for a few minutes, if that's okay. So grief is a natural human phenomenon. Um, amazingly, the human organism, a human being, is intrinsically wired to be able to grieve. We are built with the expectation that many of the people we care about or are connected with will actually die before we do. And so the same way that communities can bring a new person in, through birth or marriage, um, we have ways of surrendering people to to death. And so grief lives in our brains, in our thinking, and in our emotions. It lives in our body with a, the horrible body sensations when we're grieving, not being able to sleep, 
not being able to eat, restlessness, exhaustion, grief is exhausting. And then it affects our spirit, it affects our social, our social world. And we all we have this natural mechanism to do that. But a particular challenge to our ability to grieve is a sudden and unexpected death. And a death by overdose is, for many people, both a shock and also expected. So for some people, it's an absolute shock. They had no idea that a person was using. They had no idea about the lethality of substances. Um, but for other people, especially families that are have a, a person struggling with substance use challenges, They've seen this person through hospitalizations, through relapses, through sobriety episodes, through treatment. And so they've gone on this long roller coaster with this person. And then an event happens and the recovery was not successful or the substance overwhelmed them. Or it, there are cases, of course, where people use use drugs as a means to end their life. But we're really going to focus more on the accidental overdose, not the suicide by drugs tonight. So the shock of it is something that, you know, the human mind experiences shock kind of like anesthesia, really, psychological anesthesia that kind of gets us through the funeral those first couple of weeks and then dissipates. And for people who lose someone to overdose death, Unlike people who lose someone to cancer or a natural death following a long life, there's a lot of guilt. And that guilt can be, and not for everyone, but for most people, the coulda, woulda, shouldas. And that's sort of, where am I in this story? Why did my child end up this way when my child was drinking with all those same kids in high school and my kid is the one who became an alcoholic or my kid is the one who who got into my medicine chest 10 years ago and took you know his dad's medicine that was intended for pain control and so the, those sorts of things and then guilt in our world and so guilt is sort of our conscience if you will we need it to tell us right and wrong but it's disproportionate in these situations because there is no one single cause of a death by overdose but it, the way guilt says, oh, you, you, mother, father, brother, you did something wrong, and that's why this person died. You know, the sad thing is that's almost immediately followed by shame. And shame is outside of us. And that's our perception, and in the case of overdose death, very often true, that the world is judging us. Oh, mom, you must have done something wrong. Or why didn't you try harder? Or it was, you know, your genetics or whatever. And that shame can, as, as you know, lead to isolation at a time when, even when grief is a solitary journey, we really need support from other people. And so if you have that shame, and then you have a world of people who don't know what to say and don't know what to do and are awkward and stay away from you. It's very isolating. Then another feature is blame. And there, you know, in these deaths, there's a lot of blame to go around. I mean, we don't have to go through the whole story of what's happened to opioids on the street and that this isn't your grandmother's heroin anymore. We don't have to go into those details. I think all of your listeners know those details. 
But when a, for a griever, not only do they blame maybe the prescriber, the original prescriber or dealers, street dealers, but they may blame the treatment system. They may blame the mental health system. They may blame the correction system. They may blame the schools. And then, of course, they can blame themselves. So blame is a big thing. And then anger is also a big thing. And, you know, you're angry at all the people you blame. You can be angry at yourself. But, you know, I'm a, I'm, as a therapist, I would say at the start, um, anger can actually be protective when we're angry in early grief because it keeps us active, keeps us sort of focused on things. It may not be the healthiest way to focus, but as with depression being the alternative, I would rather have an angry, angry griever any day. Um, so there's anger. And then, as I said, isolation. And, and that's those are the biggest dangers. So you can see when you're offering a grief support to a group of individuals, and that's sort of the, the shared landscape of their experience, we want them to have a chance to talk about those issues themselves. And which is a, bit, a different dialogue than when people say, you know, oh, I, I lost my husband of 60 years and I don't know how I'm going to, you know, manage to pay the bills. He always paid the bills. That's a, a very deep and painful grief. But you see, the conversation in the support group would be different. We also really care that the clinician who's supporting them is really knowledgeable about addiction issues and 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 brings the compassion that's necessary to this work because every time people leave our support group, they go out into that very judgmental world. And so they have to have this very safe space where, you know, the understanding of the other group members and the compassion as well as the skill of the facilitator can help them navigate that grief. So that's where it came from. And then just to tell you how we're sustaining it, um, this is one thing I'm really proud about living in Utah and our Department of Health and Human Services, which is now part of the Department of Health and Human Services, as you know, probably you probably know, gets federal funding through SAMHSA when the state has to turn in account of how many people are in treatment, how many, you know, all their estimates and the population of need. Then SAMHSA responds with dollars that go to treatment and prevention. But Utah is the only state, the first state, and still the only state that said, we're going to take some of that money and apply it to grief care of people who've lost someone to an overdose death. So we have our, our support groups. That's kind of a drop in the bucket. But our commitment now is to train as many clinicians, mental health clinicians across the state as we can. And we've you know crossed the thousand clinician line to train them in the unique experience of overdose grief. And we also want to train the police. We want to train firefighters. We want particularly want to train death investigators who are first on the scene when there's a death by overdose death, that in their work, they're compassionate to those family members. And, you know, that is so impactful as people are grieving. And I, I, I guess I want to also give a really important shout out to the, our state office of medical examiners. So they're the people who do all the granular work here of saying, was this a 
overdose death that was accidental? Is this a suicide overdose? And so they communicate with families, the survivors, and they automatically direct anyone who's expressing grief distress to our program. And so we're able to you know, care for people who would never otherwise have known about us if it weren't for our very proactive and uh, citizen-focused um, Office of Medical Examiner. So I am really grateful for all these things. It's created this opportunity for us to care for people who would just be struggling in silence and shame and help them understand their, first of all, their grief makes perfect sense. And number two, this isn't their fault, you know, and to surrender that shame and blame is terrific. I can talk a little bit more about the shame in a minute, but unless you have a question about that. I don't, I don't think I have a question at this point. It's just everything you're saying. I'm just, it's, it really resonates and it's fantastic that you have this program. Is your programming available virtually or is it yeah. all in person? Actually, because we, we serve the entire state, some groups that we have big groups, like we can fill a loss of spouse group in Salt Lake city. And we may have that in person, but our overdose group, because there are so many of these deaths happen disproportionately in rural communities, we are committed to outreach to rural communities. And so um, we do the groups virtually. Um, we're able, you know, we have a very modest charge for the group, $50 for eight weeks of clinical care. But we probably scholarship half the people who come. Our means test is very simple. Uh, is this, would paying that $50 be a hardship if they say, oh, yeah, then their scholarship, too. you know, we don't we don't try to make a big deal about that. We just want it accessible for people. But the other thing that's really important is we know that um, substance use disorder and death is also disproportionately represented in our indigenous communities. So we're really fortunate that we have a grief group, a sudden and unexpected death, which includes both suicide and overdose death that runs on the Navajo lands. And, you know, the um, Ute um, Substance Use Disorder Clinic has run our groups. So I, I think that's a really critical element. Your viewers can see that I'm a white person. I'm a very nice white person, but people are going to feel more comfortable. We just know this clinically if they're able to have these conversations in the context of their own culture. And, you know, we, obviously we can't touch every culture, but just, you know, we partner with Latino Behavioral Health. They do our groups in Spanish. So our commitment is not that everybody has to come to us, but I'm a professor. We want, I teach. <laughs> I want people to know what we do, be able to fit it to their culture and their community and, you know, make it work in their practice settings. Some substance use disorder treatment programs put this pro model right into their treatment. And they, they say, and I say, you've got one simple question to ask your clients. Was there a loss in your backstory to the client that either contributed to you start misusing substance, maintained you in substance abuse, or is a risk for relapse when you leave? And if they say, oh, yeah, it was my dad dying or I saw my dad beat my mother or something like that, you know, you've got to be in a grief group, friend, because <laughs> you've got to deal with that backstory. So and, and, and those losses. 
So we want it to be not just for families and friends in the community. Of course, that's our priority population. But we want substance use treatment professionals to know how to do this and address the loss that people who are in moving toward recovery can manage their own losses, their own griefs. And very often, as you know, because substance abuse happens in families, a lot of times people who are, you know, 21 and struggling with recovery had parents who had addiction issues. And so, you know, again, we want to just address the whole person. And then I think our last shout out is the social workers in the substance use treatment program in the prison are doing our groups. So we know we know this the these are losses, and not everyone experiences an overdose loss as a trauma, but many people do, especially those people who found the person who died, who you know had to you know see the body or whatever. We know it just adds layers. A, a witnessed a witnessed death or a witnessed dead body, you know that just adds so much to the burden of, of grief. So um, the challenges in this particular loss are the loss is ambiguous. So even if the medical examiner would say to me, I'm certain that this was an accidental overdose, not a suicide, in the mind of the family, that certainty is still pretty ambiguous because it doesn't answer the question, why then? Why did my kid buy this? Why did they go to this place. Why didn't they tell me, come to me for help if they were upset? So those why, 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 whys, that's what we call an ambiguous loss. And then you put that on the backdrop of what I referred to with the shame, which is more precisely referred to as disenfranchised grief, grief that is not socially endorsed. You got a recipe for a person who's going to be in distress for a long time, unless they get support. So we really care about them getting the right support. And also, I mean, I think it's not a day goes by that Darlene and I, and I'm sure you don't hear about our clients and patients going to memorial after funeral after funeral of their friends and peers who are right. passing. But can you talk more about this disenfranchised loss and this, the shame, blame cycle and how you approach, you know, teaching substance use providers and mental health providers how to better support the community and how to support our patients in this well, setting. Yeah, there are three things. I'll explain disenfranchised grief, but there are three approaches. How we approach the griever, you know, how we approach the clinical context of this, and then our obligation to try to change society. You know, how just get that done by the afternoon. But disenfranchised work, that's based on the work of Ken Doka, who is really a, 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 just a brilliant uh, clinician, actually also a chaplain. Um, one of the great um, research scientists in the area of grief work. And he started developing this model of disenfranchised grief when he was working with, um, at, at first, men who were who lost a partner to AIDS back in the AIDS epidemic. And what he noticed was the partners, when, the, when their partner died of AIDS, the surviving partner was shunned by the person who died's family, wasn't being invited to the funeral, wasn't acknowledged as being alive, much less that that person had a loss. And so he started with that. And then, you know, there's so many examples of grief that's not endorsed. You know, when a divorced woman's 
husband remarries and then he dies, you know, she may still have feelings for him, but she may not, the second wife may not invite her to the funeral. So there are all these ways that either with intention or without intention, society is cruel to people. And so the next step being how we support grievers who experience that and to acknowledge and give them a place to be angry about that. You know, when my next door neighbor's mother died, I was the first one over to support. And now my son has died and, you know, she won't even look me in the eye in the grocery store. You know, you probably don't want to blow up at the neighbor with that, but you want to have a place to have that processed, right? But the second thing is with clinician education. The first rule, and obviously if clinicians are doing addiction treatment care, they're going to be particularly sensitive to the shame issues. But, you know, most clinicians are regular doctors, regular nurses, and so forth, and It's really easy for clinicians who have authority and actually power to pile on. You know, we always hear stories of, oh, he's in, you know, a frequent flyer in the emergency department or the labeling that we do with people and not acknowledging, first of all, the suffering of the person who's who's addicted to substance, but the suffering of the family that's coming in with them who come in and they're fraught and they're angry. And so we say, oh, family know, you know, and so, you know, there's just no place for that judgment. So the last thing we want clinicians to do is pile on to this disenfranchisement. We want them, and most want to, of course, be compassionate and say, oh, you know, brother, help me understand what's going on here. What are we going to need to do to help you turn this around? And family, what are we going to do to help you do this? And we know there are support programs for families in the community. A Al-Anon is a great one. NAMI has wonderful programs. There, there are good, good programs out there if people know where to go and find them. So we have to help with that. And then I really have to say, we have to, as clinicians uh, and professionals, we have to change society here. We, we have to, you see, I'm vocal. Uh, you guys are vocal. We have to change this nature. And this is a, actually a wasted opportunity from the pandemic. The pandemic should have taught us to be more compassionate. And it didn't. It Instead, it made us more divided. But we are part of a movement in Caring Connections. It's called Compassionate Communities. And the idea is that when people live in compassionate communities, they're connected, meaning they know each other and they care about each other. Number two, they're respected, meaning they're respected just for who they are, not what they bring to the table. And if a person is struggling with alcoholism or struggling with drug misuse, we still care about them. They're still part of our community. And then the third thing is, and this is about the grievers, that they're protected, meaning when the bad thing happens and they're suffering, we don't ignore them. We resource them. And so that's what we mean by a compassionate community. So if we just kind of step back and take a bird's eye view of that, that means the suicide griever gets as much care, much respect. The overdose griever gets as much care, as much respect. And, and this is the most important thing, that the person who died is remembered as a person and not by the circumstances of the death.
And so when you lose someone to suicide or overdose death at the start, or a, or a patient, right? Or a client, all you see is that overdose, you know, and it just takes up all of your space about who that person was. Well, over time, and this takes time, whether you're the parent who lost a child or you're the psychiatrist who lost the client, what we want to have happen is that we remember that person like here in your heart. It's not with all their wrinkles and wrinkles and bumps and warts. I mean, this is re realistic memory. And we want the circumstances of the death to be held out. I'm trying to do this at arm's length. Okay. Meaning not hiding it behind our back that we're not, we don't advise that grievers lie about the circumstances of the death, though. It's their story to tell. I mean, we don't tell them what to say. But over time, we want people to say, my son died a tragic death and this is what happened. Okay. And then that person says, oh, you know, your son went to high school with my son. And, you know, my son still tells the story of him and your son toilet papering their girlfriend's houses. And then the mom, who's the griever, says, oh, you remember my kid as a kid, as a kid, as a person who lived and had a future that he doesn't have anymore. But we want that attention to shift from the circumstances of the death to the life that was lived without, you know, making it all magic and pink and unicorns and rainbows, but realistic. My kids struggled for a long, long time. He tried and he tried, wasn't able, wasn't able to make it in recovery. It's a different story. And you probably don't read obituaries like I do because it's sort of an occupational hazard for me. But you are now seeing obituaries that specifically say, my child died from terminal depression or died by taking his life or, and we're careful with safe messaging because we don't want to glorify the death, but we want to re recognize the humanity of the person who died. Okay. And so I think we are kind of with overdose grief now where we were with suicide grief about six or seven years ago. And the more we talk about it, and we don't normalize that as a way to have life end, we don't want to sort of encourage that in any way, but we, we want to humanely bring the human that is no more to remembrance. So that's pretty important. Kathy, I have a question about desensationalizing these kinds of deaths and how you address that. Because I, I know in the community, even in the com medical community, if someone dies actually by both suicide or by overdose, there's this kind of shock factor and ooh, what happened? Mm. And yeah. how do you how do you navigate that? um tactfully i mean i think the media feeds into this hugely they do they do though i i will say um even in the last two years the the media has been very respectful anytime there is a reported death by suicide the hotline numbers there if any you know that warning at the stop we're talking about suicide in this article and whatever um it's more kind of the not so legit media and social media that really magnify these issues. And again, these are tragedies. Of course, these are tragedies when they happen. 
But we, what we want to have happen with that tragedy, anytime there's a tragedy, it should be used for good. We don't want to waste a tragedy, right? So this should be used for education and to say, this is what happened. And these are the consequences of what happened. So interestingly, at least according to the, our OME, the decline that we're seeing in overdose deaths is with young people. Okay, and younger people are are giving each other the message: what you're getting on the street is not good. It's not good. You know, don't do that. And so, if if that's what it takes to turn it, but the the critical thing that that you mentioned, Paul, is safe. What we call safe messaging, and we do that in suicide um, postvention, and we certainly do want to do it in overdose death postvention care after, not prevention, but postvention. Uh, which is where I sort of pitch my tent, is how we talk about that death. So you use the example of suicide. You know everybody's first question, how did he do it? My answer to that is, tell me why that matters to you. Why does that part of the story matter to you? And then people are, yeah, you know, and it's, but again, this natural human tendency, you drive, I drive, we see the accident on the road, we rubberneck, we gawk, just like everybody, right? So that's a natural tendency, but we can shift that with people. We can shift away from the details of how this death happened to what's teachable here. This was a substance purchased on the street that had not been tested. And this was laced with highly lethal fentanyl. And this was a person who that overwhelmed their existing tolerance to an opioid and they died. Okay, that, that can, that's an educational part of the story, right? So I think that can be that can be important. And then of course, you know, when it's a celebrity, you know, that just that kind of adds more, but I can tell you those are also teachable moments. It wasn't too long ago, Robin Williams died by suicide. And as more information came out, we knew he had a neurological disorder. We know that neurological disorders changes the threshold of uh, impulse control and also, you know, the pain. And all. so again, there's no single cause to suicide. There's no single cause to either addiction or to death by overdose. And just to re respect that complexity, that, you know, it's not black and white, there's shades of gray, that that's compassion to just look for that middle space of uncertainty and, and honor that, you know. What you're saying to families is, I recognize that you will live with this mystery. Why did this happen for the rest of your life? We you will never, at least in this lifetime, get an answer to that question. Now, you know, we will figure out the genetics of addiction at some point or the social milieu that sets this up. But boy, we're far from that right now. In the meantime, let's just let's just love people. Kathy, just piggybacking on that, we frequently have patients who come in and they have a friend who just overdosed. Mm -hmm. What is the best way we can counsel them in those situations? It's often very triggering for them and yeah. traumatic. Yeah. It's such a common phenomenon. Yeah, it's very common. And in fact, in our training for clinicians, 
Um, when we are going into schools as well as in, you know, substance use disorder treatments, mental health clinics, we spend a lot of time talking about how we deal with that aftermath. And first, you have to care for the family. Secondly, you have to care for the other clients. You know, in treatment programs, clients know each other, right? They know each other. They know when these deaths happen. They're, they were together out in the community and they're together in treatment in Salt Lake City. The state We're a small place, you know, small Lake City, right? So we know that's going to happen. And I really encourage a few things. First of all, let that person just talk. You know, we have such a urge to solve a problem. All clinicians do that. We're hardwired, right? You know, what's the chief complaint? We're going to deal with it. But instead, just let them talk about all their apprehensions and their fears and so forth. And I, I give them plenty of space to do that. And not just a one-off. That's going to take a, a lot of time. So how do you feel about it? What are you doing about it? And then what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with this loss? Okay. And, you know, what you hope and I hope is, oh, I'm going to, you know, be careful or I'm going to stop. That's what we hope for. But, you know, that's sort of moralizing. If that comes from us, we want it to come from the client. But that's probably not going to happen soon. They got to process that pain. They got to process that trauma. But guess what they do when there's another trauma? They default to substance misuse as a coping mechanism. So then you just gently come under them with, you know, let's review your alternative skills here. You got other options besides drinking. You got other options besides using to deal with this pain. Pain we can bear, we can process, we can grow from. We don't always have to medicate it illicitly or legitimately. You know, we we have ways of addressing pain. And we also know we do that better in community. So the next thing, if it happens in an agency or like, a, let's just say a residential treatment program, just to give you an example, I always say there has to be a memorial event and that doesn't have to be fancy, really shouldn't be religious. Yeah. Plop a candle in the middle of the day room and have people gather and just share stories and their fears and their apprehensions and, you know, read a poem or read a fortune cookie. You know, it doesn't, doesn't have to be elaborate, but if, you don't do that. What every client is going to think is, John died. No one cares. They don't really care about me. They, they wouldn't notice if I was gone. So however humble that memorial event is, and you know, if that happens in your agency or program, you just have to call us. I mean, we've got a script. We'll just send you a script. Instant memorial service. Okay. So it just doesn't have to be complex. It just has to be something has to be something that says, you lost a friend, you lost a guy who was your roommate here in the program, we lost a client, his parents lost a child, you know, we are all grieving when we do it in different ways, but what do we take from this? So I, and I also think, you know, to that question, the clinicians also have to grieve. So we yes. talk about care of the family, care of the other clients, then we have to take care of each other. And again, we have some strategies for that about how a, a clinical team, for example, could be mutually supportive first, not try to process the event. This isn't the time for M&M rounds. Process the event, talk it through a little bit, just the emotional tone of it. Really support the person who was the lead clinician. If there was a lead clinician, really support that person. You, you'll, you'll do the 
you know, root cause analysis a week from now or two weeks from now. You don't have to do it today. And then the the, the last thing is every individual clinician, even if that wasn't your client, has to really push into self-care, really lean into self-care and give themselves the space. Because the reality is everybody who's still in treatment and the clinicians, they still have work to do, right? So we don't close the clinic. We don't close the program. So, but we also know it's not business as usual for a while. And frankly, that's how death is supposed to work. That's how grief is supposed to work. Because I don't want to live in a world where people die and everybody can just drive by. I want a death to take our attention and and make us think, oh, this is so sad. Or how can I support this family? And I am so grateful that I am alive. Or you know, whatever the message of of grief is, you know, I want us to pay attention because human life is valuable. And and people struggling with addiction disorders are valuable human beings who are worthy of another chance and their families are worthy of support for what they try to do. And yeah, I know there are crappy families out there. I, I know that. But And there certainly is no such thing as a normal family. But all families, all humans, regardless of, even if they painted themselves into that corner, you know, they deserve compassion. You know, we don't coax people out of the the corner they got themselves stuck in by judging them. We coax them out by saying, you come out here. If you can crawl out of that little bunny hole, um, we're out here. We're not the fox. We're we're bunnies with you. We'll be bunnies with you. Or that was a dumb metaphor. I'm sorry for that. But that we don't want to hurt you. We we are want to help. And then tell us what you need because every griever is different. Oh, I love it. No, that is just fantastic, Kathy. I think that's so important. The part though about clinicians and just the self care because they'll have to keep working. But you do need to be able to just be able to somehow have that balance that isn't just business as usual. Because I think sometimes, especially the last three years have been particularly challenging as we've seen this rise in overdose death. I don't know that there's a clinician out here that hasn't been affected. Just these rising numbers and you get that call, like it's the middle of your workday and you get this call that you've lost Mm -hmm. a patient and you've still got another 20 patients on your schedule that you have to see and somehow keep going. And well, I, I think it's important to, that, to honor think, that. Yeah, you and to, to give yourself that time. But frankly, in mental health, you know, we need to start thinking like oncologists. I mean, we need to say, you know, we're joining with people in a high-risk care endeavor. Yeah, High risk, high risk for the client. You know, these are clients who, you know, could go either way, right? One day, one day, oh, families in need demanding very, very high levels of distress, emotionality, um, you know, many thinking of self-harm themselves. This is very distressing. And then um, just this, this idea that we also have other clients to take care of. So I don't think the answer is being stronger. I've stopped giving resilience talks because I think the talk I would give is now yeah, it's really bad. Let's. How are we going to hang in together instead of oh, be more resilient? 
Um, <laughs> though I am a believer in resilience. I appreciate that. <laughs> I just don't think you can prescribe it um, or force gratitude on people. But, you know, oncologists go into it recognizing that they're going to lose people. They, I mean, they know that. And that's not to say it's not going to hurt or that's that was that patient. I, I let myself get really close to that patient and we tried everything and all of that despair that we feel. You know, what's the poem? Every surgeon has a graveyard in their brain where they go back and revisit the mistakes that they made. So I and we we don't want to lose that part of our clinical self-criticism, and I don't mean cruel criticism, but I mean just our self-assessment. Because if we if we blow this off, we will turn into horrible people, hard-boiled eggs, really. And we don't want that. So we have to leave ourselves vulnerable for the pain. But just like I say to every family, this death was not caused by a single event. This was a multifactorial situation. I would say the same thing to a clinician. Your client's death was not caused by a single event. It was multifactorial. It was at that moment, it was a perfect storm of risk. And this person died. So we don't want to minimize that loss in clinicians, but we don't want any clinician to say, I was the sole cause of that. I mean, we don't even do that in hospital safety anymore. We don't say, Oh, this is the single reason this this patient was given the wrong drug. We we know there was a cascade of events that led to that. It's worth examining, but boy, not on the first day. The first day, you know, you gather your comrades around you and you hug them and you you take their hugs and you probably will finish out your panel that day, won't you? Yep. Yeah, but it's hard not to. I mean, it's it's hard not to, especially with um suicide deaths and patients to not you talk about the family members you know shame and blame and guilt i i mean i think i've experienced that personally where you have you lose someone and you just can't stop thinking what could i have you know all oh, the things yeah. you just said what could i have done i should have done this or i should have done more or i should have hospitalized that person yeah, and, we react exactly mm, like the family exactly. does guilt shame blame anger anger right all of those sorts of things so yeah. and i too have lost clients uh, to suicide and oh, with more clinical experience that becomes bearable in a different way the alternative to that and we do see this is there are therapists and physicians who the first time a, a client or a patient expresses any sort of self-harm thinking, they refer them to a different person. We don't want to, we don't want to abandon them. I'm saying what we really need to recognize is we have taken on very challenging situations. We have. Mm -hmm. And there's a cost to that. When we when you're vulnerable and you open your heart as a parent to a child who's struggling with alcohol, when you open your heart to a client, um, you, there's a personal risk there. And yes, we can talk boundaries all we want. And I believe in boundaries. They're the protection between your lived experience and someone else's. But optimal clinical care requires vulnerability on the part of the clinician. No client's going to trust a clinician that conveys indifference or impatience. Mm -hmm. And so that, but that's much harder, harder work at the front end. And then if a client dies, 
Um, it's much harder work on the back end. All right. But the single message is not, I am not doing this work anymore. Because right now with the rate of overdoses, lethal and not, the rate of addiction, the rate of depression, suicide, right now, frankly, we're all hands on deck. And the most protective thing that we have as clinicians is the same thing that families have when they're grieving. Families, they need each other. Okay. They need each other. That's why individual therapy is great, but there is nothing like group support. Clinicians, no, we don't do group therapy with clinicians because they wouldn't come. They should. <laughs> but all right, you know of what I speak, right? Um, but we the solution is the same. We need each other. We need each other when when these tragic things happen. We to be the support, to be the sounding board, to maybe say, okay, I'll I'll double cover today. If you want to go home, if you need to step away, whatever. So we have to do that for each other, or we're never going to get through this. And I truly believe that what we're talking about, both with overdose death and with suicide death, and so many of these tragic losses, these are actually solvable problems. I, I do really think we can turn the corner on this, how fast we can. You know, that's sort of the all hands on deck question, right? And it's not just more clinicians. We need more clinicians, better trained clinicians. We need more resources. We need harms reduction strategies. We need more than what we have. But when I navigate through the world of mental health clinicians, um, I just come away really humbled by the dedication and the care. You know, I don't have to teach people how to care. I just need to teach people some of the skills that our research and our program has to, to, has to offer to other clinicians. I want them to have more tools in their toolbox. Um, but I, you know, they already care. We trained, you know, a whole agency substance use disorder team on Tuesday. And, you know, I was just blown away with their dedication. I mean, here I'm, we're working at the agency during the day. They're going to staff the warm line at night. I mean, these are really dedicated people. And I, I said, look around the room. You're, you're the support for each other. You can go home. You can have the best spouse in the world. But I don't get what you do. Um, you need the, each other. So this, the principles of group support for families who are grieving is the same thing for professionals. And, and, and we also know many professionals themselves struggle with addiction issues. We know that. It's no secret. And again, but it's a shame, the secrecy that prevents people from coming forward and saying, me too, I need help. And instead of piling on, we say, well, let's get you that help. Let's get you that help. Right. And we would live we that way with each other. Exactly. Yeah, we're kidding. Well, thank you so much. So just can you give us a couple of key points in summary, like what you really want our listeners to know? We have many providers, we have students, we have fellows, we have lots of mental health professionals who listen, law enforcement, criminal mm -hmm. justice folks, yeah. and a lot of the public. And what would you like people most to know? We have quite a broad audience. Yeah. Well, for grievers, first of all, that you're not alone that all the horrible feelings and thoughts that you have are, are congruent with the situation of your loss 
And we want to make ourselves available to you. Our, our, I think you could probably share our contact information, but easiest way to get a hold of our grief groups is to call our office, 801-585-9522. And we're on the website. If you Google Caring Connections, University of Utah, you'll find us. And for providers too, we've got a provider page and how to support a patient or client that's grieving. So we have that for providers too. Um, and so I would just encourage grievers who've lost someone to an overdose death to, to seek support. And it may not be us. If we can refer you somewhere else, we're happy to do that. Well, that that's the connections part of Caring Connections. For providers, um, I, I just can't emphasize again, learn more about this grief. It's grief you yourself will bear, not just families. And then really develop that network of support for when you need it so that it's there. You don't have to grow it on, on the ground. And then also both for grievers and for professionals really can't emphasize the importance of self-care period. And self-care, I'm not just talking about running and eating right. I'm really talking about intentional self-compassion. This is recognizing the challenge of the work and saying, I elect, I intend to continue to do what I can. And you, if you know the concluding line of a self-compassion meditation, it usually goes something like this. Um, my heart goes to this person. I did not create their situation, nor is it my full responsibility to solve it. Yet, if I can lighten the load for them, I will. And so that's when you take that self-compassion, you project it out. You scoop it up and you bring it back in. Very hard to do that in solitude. So again, our professional relationships matter and, you know, cultivate them. And that also means being vulnerable with each other. Something we don't do very well, do we? I love it. That is such sage advice. Thank you so much, Kathy. Uh, We have learned so much from all of your wisdom and advice that you've given us. I appreciate you so much. And just one other thought, yeah. if this, if the grief is new for people, I just want to warn you, the holidays are going to be miserable. And we do offer a community event called Grief in the Holidays. It's November 14th up at the University and the College of Nursing. And, you know, this is one where you can just kind of sit and take in some good ideas and some stories. You don't have to self-disclose or anything, but just to help people navigate those holidays. So all that information is on our website. Okay. Thank you. But thank thanks you for, for those allowing resources. me to mention that. Yes, thank you. No, we appreciate all the resources. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. That was really wonderful. We really appreciate your time. And I've, we've referred people to you. I know Darlene mm-hmm. has as well over the years, actually. So it's a wonderful resource for us in Utah. And I'm imagining that people in other states have similar programs they can refer mm. their families to. Or are you quite No, unique? actually, we're, uh, we just trained the police force in in a small town in Indiana. But no, actually, Utah is pretty unique so far. We're we're hoping that, and again, this would be sort of backfilling it through SAMHSA. Now that we have the evidence that shows that this is really helpful for people, that, you know, they might might share share us as a resource. At least. Thank you. All right. Good night. Goodbye. Thank you. Until next time.
Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.